0: Welcome to the Academy of Neurologic Communication Disorders and Sciences Podcast. My name is Michael Beale. I'm a speech language pathologist and assistant professor at California State University, Northridge. In this interview, I talked to Dr. Natalie Douglas, who's an assistant professor in the Communication Disorders Department at Central Michigan University, about her interest in implementation science, treatment of cognitive difficulties in persons with dementia, and the challenges of being a speech pathologist in a skilled nursing facility. Dr. Douglas's research aims to advance implementation science, communication and quality of life interventions for persons with dementia and life participation approaches to treatment of aphasia. She's actively involved with the Global Implementation Initiative and serves on an international committee charged with consolidating tools to drive both organizational and individual change as it relates to evidence-based practice implementation. To start our conversation, I asked Dr. Douglas how she became interested in implementation science and how she became interested in the care of individuals with dementia.
1: I started off at Ohio University and I worked in Brooke Hallowell's eye movement aphasia research lab during the end of my bachelor's and the beginning of my, um, and the end of actually my master's degree, I participated in a lot of basic research and, you know, research really excited me and she really kind of was, encouraging me to continue on and I really really did think about it hard but there was just something was more of a gut feeling that said it wasn't quite time yet you know there was just something that wasn't really clicking fully even though I wanted to do it so then after I graduated I ended up moving to Florida where I worked at a hosp in a community hospital setting where we had an outpatient setting We were cross-trained for acute care. And then I also started doing like PRN in nursing homes. And so then I ended up staying there for about 10 years. And then it was during that time that I got connected with Jackie Hinckley's work in aphasia. And I started using some of her narrative-based practice work in some of my outpatients. And so I looked her up and I realized that she was at the University of South Florida and I did a little Google Maps and I thought, wow, you know, this is only 90 minutes away from where I live right now. This could potentially be the ticket, you know? So I went and um, met Jackie and got hooked up with her um, and became one of her um, doc students at the University of South Florida. So I initially wanted to pursue doctoral studies for like aphasia treatment research But then like during my PhD, I was continuing to work mostly in nursing homes at that point. But I kind of I wanted the two worlds to be more integrated. And they just were just not at all integrated. And then
0: what what do you mean by integrated?
1: They were just worlds that were so separate. Like I would go to school and things that I was doing at school did not relate to anything that I was doing in the nursing home and I would leave the nursing home and I would feel guilty because I felt like I wasn't providing evidence-based practices or best practices and then I would go to school and talk about how important evidence-based practice was (laughs) and then like the next day I'm like oh my gosh I'm not I am not doing this like what am I doing? Um, it's a bit of an identity crisis. And then um, Jackie gave me this monograph by um, Dean Fixen and colleagues about implementation science. And the whole monograph, it was a synthesis of the literature about, well, how do we merge these two worlds of the messiness of clinical service provision and research practice and best evidence and then I came to realize that this is a scientific discipline and the tools that implementation science was bringing to the table I'm like you know this can really help us have solve a lot of problems that I saw in the nursing home and the hospital you know and so it just really from that point on just got me so incredibly passionate about this idea that we really can bring these worlds together, research and clinical practice, and we really can improve our service provision by paying attention to some of these key principles. So that's how I ended up here. So now I'm at, so after my doctorate, I got, this is my first academic position at Central going on my um, fourth academic year, so... Mm -hmm.
0: It's interesting to hear you talk about this feeling that you had mm-hmm. of struggling in your clinical practice in some ways mm-hmm. to provide to be true to the principles of evidence-based practice, while in an academic setting, that's the line. That's right. You know, that's that's what we're promoting. I right. ex- I experienced that too teaching and practicing at the same time Mm -hmm. it's it's so easy to stand up in front of a group of students and tell them how it should be Mm -hmm. but doing it Mm -hmm. when it comes right down to it even when it sounds straightforward and like it should be Mm -hmm. uh, easy to do or doable right there's so many little things that get in the way. Yes. And maybe it's not so much about, you know, it's not a black or white issue. So there's mm-hmm. there's perfect practice. And right. then there's not paying any attention to evidence. Yes. And for me, I feel like I'm always on a spectrum there somewhere where I have this ideal way I should practice, but I have all these influences affecting how well I can do that. Mm -hmm. And so I'm always somewhere moving in that direction, but never adhering in every (laughs) possible way that, you know, that voice in my head is telling me I should.
1: Exactly, I feel the same way. I I think we would do much better to look at it as something that's a lot more fluid and dynamic in a spectrum, as you say, as opposed to saying, okay, this person is adhering to best practices and this person isn't. It's not dichotomous, I don't, I don't think.
0: Yeah, yeah. So what are some of the challenges that prevent us from doing what we know we should do?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think you just in that last question really hit on a lot of what was my struggle was that in a lot of cases, I I I had like the cognitive knowing of what to do, but I just could not do it for a number of reasons. So in my experience, the biggest issue, barriers were um, unreasonable productivity standards, feeling misunderstood by the rest of the rehabilitation team and by the leadership. I felt like they did not understand exactly why I was there, what services I could bring to the table. And so I felt like there was a very large disconnect between what I thought I could bring to the table and what why they thought I was supposed to be there. So for me, those were the biggest barriers, I would say, Um, the productivity standards, not feeling valued, and then just being very misunderstood. I think this model that in my experience and in some of the data that I've taken is that speech pathology in that setting, they're kind of thrown in with, PT, physical therapy and occupational therapy. And it's like, everybody has to do like 45 minutes. Like you pull your person, either you go to their room or you bring your person to the therapy gym, do your minutes and then kind of move on. And I think we need to really think about that model of service delivery from a speech pathology perspective, because I think, especially in long-term care, A lot of where we can get the most bang for our buck is in changing the environment, in communication partner training, and these are things that don't fit in that, I'm going to pull you out for 45 minutes and maybe directly work with you for a certain period of time and then send you back. Do you know what I'm saying? So that was the biggest thing for me.
0: Yeah. I'm not an expert on occupational therapy practice or physical therapy <laughs> right. practice. You know, I, I'm in the room with them right. sometimes at the same time. And I, you know, I'm in the team meetings and they talk about their goals and whatnot, but mm-hmm. <laughs> they seem to have it easier than we do. I think
1: so. <laughs> I'm sure they would disagree. Um, but I think that they do. It's It's a little bit, and you know, I think I'm, talking to my area of expertise is a lot more like language and cognitive communication based i don't know if some of these principles that we're talking about are maybe a little different if we're talking about motor speech disorders so i don't want to you know disregard that but um
0: or dysphagia
1: or yes which is a whole other thing in long-term care too so
0: yeah so as far as productivity goes and time, what I hear you saying is that our goals don't necessarily fit into this really tightly scheduled way of practicing. Mm -hmm. But also in my experience, it takes time Mm -hmm. to plan Mm -hmm. and prepare Mm
1: -hmm.
0: and analyze. Yeah all of those components that go into evidence-based practice. You know, I'm fine doing all the reading that I need to do on my own time Mm -hmm. to be up to date on the literature, but I'll give you an example. I often don't feel like I have time to assess people as much as I need to. Now, you know, I've got my ways of playing the system, kind of, in a way, to Mm -hmm. get those assessments in there. Um, What what were, were you experiencing something similar?
1: Oh, yeah. Well, you had, when I was there, so this was probably about, you know, three or four years ago now, you had 15 minutes to do an eval. And then you could sort of do this deal where you said, all right, I'll do the aval in 15 minutes and I'm going to put the 15 minutes, like whatever code it is for the 15 minutes. But then I'm going to spend the next 45 minutes doing like a diagnostic treatment session or something to where you could essentially continue assessing, but then build that part as a therapy session instead So that's what we did, you know, so that you end up with an hour, you know, but then I I don't, I don't know if, I don't know. It's like, does that, does that matter? I mean, does it matter what you put down on the form in terms of like 15 (laughs) minutes here, 45 minutes here, if you're able to do what's best for that person in front of you? Or is that an ethical concern that my time does not match up? with exactly what I put on the form, because that's just a completely, who's can do an assessment in 15 minutes, you know?
0: Yeah, so just for the for the listeners, I mm-hmm. just wanna make it clear. So my experience was primarily in the VA. Okay. So the facility I was at, we had a nursing home, but I didn't have to really deal with Medicare mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. and certainly not rehab companies. Um, so I had, I think, a level of freedom there that right. most SLPs don't have. I've done some PRN work in sniffs in the community, but that was so long ago. Mm-hmm. But I do remember, I don't, for lack of a better word, feeling a little dirty.
1: Yeah, I le- I would leave there and I would feel like <laughs> man, like ten showers cannot fix how I feel right now because I and you just you just have all these things. On you know you want you're like okay well, in my mind I'm better off doing whatever I can for the person in front of me to where they're safe and healthy and communicating. So if I have to mess up on the paperwork, that's where I'm gonna mess up. But it's almost like you have to pick which ethical dilemma you want to be in.
0: <laughs> <You> yeah, <know? laughs> yeah. Well. I've always I don't know if the right word is it's they're not white lies exactly, but you mm-hmm. you kind of address this, you know, where you've got fifteen minutes for an avowal, but you really avow for longer than that, and mm-hmm. so your billing codes aren't a true representation of how you spent your time right. but but you put down there what needs to be there because you understand the requirements of reimbursement and things like that. And it's too bad that we have to be in that position where we not only have to worry about how to help our clients, our patients, but we have to worry about how to play at the game. Yes. (laughs) Right. Uh, And And then go ahead.
1: Oh, I was just wondering. I always asked myself, you know, if I'm putting this on the paper, I really always felt like I was perpetuating a broken system by saying, well, I really did only evaluate a person for 15 minutes. And that's problematic, you know, if we're all putting that down, but none of us are really doing that.
0: So I mentioned before we started recording the podcast that I spend some time on social media Mm -hmm. that are specifically for speech pathology outside of the ASHA um, community forums. Mm -hmm. And I see a lot of speech pathologists and obviously, you know, this is a, who knows how representative this is of the general feeling of SLPs, but a lot of hand-wringing mm-hmm. in public by particularly um, CFs yeah. and, and new clinicians. You know,
1: mm-hmm.
0: the nursing uh, facilities can be difficult for them because oftentimes they're not getting as much supervision as they need. Right. And it's a challenging environment for even an experienced therapist. Mm-hmm. But there seem to be two kind of complaints. One is unreasonable productivity standards and not Mm -hmm. having enough time. And two, they just don't, they have difficulty understanding how to help Mm -hmm. uh, individuals. And they see perhaps other therapists doing activities that don't make sense to them. Yes you know, right. the, the kind of the, the workbook uh, mm. type of approach. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, and, and I, I, I copied some of these this morning. I went through really quick and just okay. copied some of the, the recent ones and okay. I'll, I'll, I'll read one okay. just, just to kind of put it all in context. Yeah. I just started my CF at a sniff. On the long-term care side, some of the people on my caseload for cognitive therapy are late, to mid, uh, late, mid, to late stage dementia. The type that I will tell them my name, then have them repeat it, wait 10 seconds, ask them again, and they've forgotten. I'm at a complete loss as what to do for these patients. I almost feel like it's unethical to have these people on my caseload for cognition. When mm. I followed my supervisor for the first day on the job, she had people like like this just sort cards by color or by number. This feels so irrelevant to their ADLs, but she says it helps keep their mind hold onto skills to apply to other daily issues. It doesn't help that so many of them are H-O-H. What does H-O-H stand for, I don't know. Hard of hearing. Hard of hearing, of hearing. thank mm-hmm. you. Mm-hmm. That I feel like I spend 50% of my time with them practically yelling or writing things down for them to read. Wow. A lot of that, a lot of posts like that. Um, Man,
1: there is a lot there.
0: There and is. I,
1: I, I, you know, I appreciate her willingness I'm assuming it's a her, (laughs) I appreciate her willingness to come forward with that and at least share that, share this struggle, you know, and I think that we do need to be more open and honest and truthful about what's going on in these settings and it's not to like beat anybody with a stick, but just to recognize the complexity of what we've got going on here in the multiple levels. So when I listen to that excerpt in particular, you know, several things come to mind. One being, I think we need to consider our training programs at the graduate level. Here at Central, We recently got through our curriculum review to increase our master's degree to 62 credits, which I realize is very large, Um, but we did that so that there were multiple reasons, but as far as I'm concerned, we split our classes to have separate courses on aphasia, dementia, and traumatic brain injury, So I think having a separate class in dementia specifically, um, we know from the literature that over 50% of people living in long-term care have some form of dementia. Mm -hmm. It's probably much higher. So to have our students and our future professionals go into the world with maybe a one-week dementia focus in an aphasia class, is just, it's unacceptable to expect them to be able to perform, you know, in a competent manner in this setting when we consider those educational parameters that we have right now. So I think that's something that we really need to consider, especially because unfortunately, we know that more and more people are getting dementia. It's not going the other direction. And as speech language pathologists, I think we have the potential to be not just on the sidelines, but truly leaders in supporting the communication and quality of life of these individuals in long-term care. So I think we need to think about our academic education. I also think we really need to think about our clinical fellow situation in terms of um, there's a very... A wonderful speech pathologist in a local skilled nursing facility here. And um, his supervisor is an hour away. And this is no fault of him or the supervisor. But let's think about what we know about behavior change, about apprenticeship, about coaching, about how we become experts. And it just, it's not setting that clinical follow-up for success in the current model, I think, in a lot of cases. In some of the data that I collected here in the state of Michigan, the majority of speech language pathologists in skilled nursing facilities in Michigan have been practicing for three years or less. And I don't think that's coincidence. I think it's if you don't want to work in a school system, you are much more apt to get a job in a skilled nursing facility because there are more jobs available than in hospitals. So if you don't want to work in a school, you can get hired there. And it's almost like once you get wiser to kind of knowing what's going on, then you end up <laughs> like leaving the setting. So those are, you know, there's multiple things in that excerpt and we can talk about what you want, but those those really stand out to me that we just really need to do some thinking about how we're training our our people.
0: Well you're describing a double whammy. Mm-hmm.
1: They're
0: the in their graduate programs they're not giving. And it's my perception is is what you've described the the aphasia class or the cognitive communication class with right. an with an emphasis on aphasia and perhaps TBI after that, right hemisphere disorder, and then a little subsection on dementia.
1: Right, right.
0: When, you know, there are many, or if not the majority of SLPs working in the, for lack of a better term, medical speech pathology domain, Mm -hmm. who are working with people with dementia, or that's a large part of their caseload, they're in SNFs, and then you get, you get these situations, and I know many SLPs who had essentially no real clinical supervision.
1: Right. Uh, and I know for me, I was in this amazing setting for my clinical fellowship year. It was in the hospital. There was, at the time, I think there was close to maybe 20 speech pathologists. And I'm, I just, I'm so grateful for that time. I just learned so much being around those people and learning from them and having them on site was just, I don't know, in my mind, it was critical. I don't know.
0: Yeah. But it all, it's, it kind of, it all influences each other. And, you know, we talked about productivity mm-hmm. standards. I know SLPs who just, won't take students, and they right. won't and they won't take them because they're already pushed for time. Mm-hmm. I mean, that seems to be one of the more common causes. Uh, right, right. Yeah, it's
1: a big problem, you know. And I think we need to think about okay, so what is productivity really, and how we're defining it? Mm. Um, because it's if you spend. You know I, I I would envision that it would prov- it would be better for the residents, for the company, for the organization, for families across the board, if the speech pathologist was hired on a salaried position, and he or she could, of course, demonstrate productivity, but in other ways. If you spend some time manipulating the environment, um, training, doing some on-site coaching with the nursing assistants. How do we approach residents? Let me show you how to deal with this. You know, let me show you how to communicate with this person who is expressing that they don't want to take a bath or that they don't want to eat. Let me go in there with you. So where the person is, the speech-language pathologist is the truly the communication <laughs> expert in the building, And he or she can measure their productivity in a different way, but be paid on salary and not per person or by hour or by minutes or anything like that.
0: Until that changes.
1: (laughs) Anybody want to change that? Yeah. (laughs) You know? (laughs) Yeah.
0: Can you, can you paint a picture for us maybe of, how you think SLPs working in SNFs can begin to approach the cognitive communication treatment realm?
1: Right, within within the current system? Yeah. Like within the, yeah, you know, I think that um, one of the things to think about is how is the person spending their day And how do they want to spend their day? So it's almost like you go, you think about your resident, right, as a whole person and say, okay, this is my, this is my person. And what is their day like? What happens when they get up, right? So is it a situation where they wake up because they normally get up at like 745 and then Um, The nursing assistant rushes in and gets them ready super fast because they have to be down in the dining room at eight or else they're not going to get breakfast, right? So it's like you kind of like walk through the day with your resident and, and we really need input from nursing assistants mostly about, you know, where are the breakdowns happening? How can I help support, you know, where are their communication breakdowns you know because I think a lot in this population a lot of what is termed like a behavior from a negative standpoint like Mr. Smith has like behavior problems well a lot of times Mr. Smith is communicating and that's the only way that he can communicate is through his like behaviors right Mm -hmm. so I think figuring out where is that breakdown Taking place? You know, is it the a person doesn't want to eat anything at eight o'clock because they get up at 7:45, they feel rushed to get ready, et cetera? Okay, so sometimes it's just recommending a simple solution of can they have their breakfast at nine, even if it's cold cereal or something, or can somebody go in and gently wake them like at 7 15 so that they don't have, you know, all of that stress, you know, by Mm rush, rush, rush. And the nursing assistant has a little bit more time to approach and give the person time to wake up. And I think, so walking through the day and looking for things like that, I think any environmental changes that we can do. Mm -hmm. So to keep the person um, as independent as possible So maybe it's making an external memory aid on all the steps required to brush teeth, okay? So that the nursing assistant doesn't have to do that, right? So maybe it's a situation where if there was a nice laminated external memory aid in front of the sink that went through the steps of teeth brushing, that the person could do that independently. You know, we know that in dementia, this procedural memory can be spared for quite a long time. So you put that person in front of the sink, cue them to look at the aid, give them a toothbrush, give them water. You know, I mean, it could it's amazing what can happen when the person is given the opportunity to be independent. So I think any activity of daily living, you know, what can I make an external memory aid for to see if this person can do something more independently. I think the other thing that we need to consider in this population from a cognitive communication standpoint is assisted listening devices. I think we have some literature to support this idea that even if a person is not going to go through an entire like audiological eval for practical reasons, things like pocket talkers, and, or if the person has hearing aids, so that they're not just like sitting in the drawer, so that the batteries are working properly, so that everybody knows how to put them in, that they're functioning properly. Assisted listening devices, some cases are only like one or two hundred dollars. And they can make a huge difference in somebody's ability to to communicate. We had one person in the skilled nursing facility here who she sat like hunched over in her wheelchair and nobody people thought she was nonverbal because she just like her head was on the table you know and we gave her a pocket talker and she's having conversations right Mm -hmm. this is these are very simple interventions that can be extremely helpful. I think training nursing assistance is another thing to help the cognitive communication skills, making a memory book of what to expect so that the nursing aide can show Mr. Smith, Mr. Smith, look, it's it's eight o'clock. It's time to get dressed and showing them pictures, showing them nice large print that they can see, you know, because we want these people to be successful in their environment, whatever that looks like for them and to be comfortable and oriented. So any signs for wayfinding that we can put up, maybe the person wants to go to the dining room themselves, right? And maybe they can, if you do some wayfinding signs or even incorporating like space retrieval training into swallowing precautions or fall precautions um you know providing biographical books for people to have some type of stimuli to stimulate like a meaningful conversation you know and when i say a lot of this i hear like the voice in my head and i hear people in that setting say well we can't bill for that okay is and and i I get that, but I communication partner training, especially this is an evidence-based practice. We've had a systematic review. We've had an updated systematic review. You know, we've got more evidence for communication partner training than a lot of the stuff that we do. Mm. And I think I would feel very comfortable billing For training a nursing assistant in a specific communication strategy. For training a volunteer. I think that's another, I think volunteers and mobilizing volunteers is another way for us to really support best practice in long-term care right now. Like training our volunteers to be skilled communication partners so that people with dementia are engaged. So that they have the opportunity to converse that they have the opportunity to connect socially. Right. But even if it makes no sense.
0: (laughs) Yeah. But again, the voice in your head says, well, Mm -hmm. can you, can you bill for that? And so practically speaking, how do you manage that? You want to do all of this training and, and Mm -hmm. whatnot.
1: Mm
0: -hmm. Is it a matter of getting creative with how you document?
1: I think sometimes, yeah, and I I am, I think sometimes even now, if you train a nursing assistant in the presence of the resident, there's no issue in terms of billing. Mm. Um, But I think logistically, sometimes that can be a problem in terms of like finding the nursing assistant when they're not busy. Um, My colleague in Chicago, Becky Kayum, is a real advocate for Making memory aids and signs and whatnot right in the session, and letting that be your billable time, mm. right? Because you're not you don't necessarily need to spend all this time outside of the session making signs and memory aids, but you do it right there in the session if you can.
0: And that I wonder, I wonder if that would be both practical, pragmatic, but also mm-hmm. a nice way of making sure that it's a collaborative process as much as possible with your client Mm -hmm. your patient um kind of get their buy-in in in a way
1: absolutely absolutely
0: of course there are kind of two things i was thinking of Mm -hmm. one is while you were talking i was thinking well this sounds very practical and pragmatic (laughs) it's kind of Mm -hmm. hard Hard to argue with.
1: Right. So, the,
0: so the question becomes, well, why is it not being done? And I think we kind of touched on a little bit of that at the end here, that a lot of it is time. Yeah. What what is s- straightforward and pragmatic still requires a lot of time to do. Right. Um, and so maybe you can see why people sometimes default towards the more workbook and stimulation-based approaches. Mm
1: -hmm. I do see that. And I think the one, the elephant in the room that we haven't talked about yet is the major focus on swallowing in Mm. these environments to the point to where sometimes it really precludes working on any aspect of communication because I know, you know, there are specific, I used to think that I was like the choking and weight loss police right? Right. Because those are markers that everybody cares about, you know, the administrator, all of the leaders, everybody cares if somebody loses weight, everybody cares if somebody's an aspiration risk, if somebody's at risk for choking on a piece of meat, that gets everybody up in a tizzy, right? So as a speech pathologist, you got to get in there and likely you walk in and there's already like seven fires that you need to put out about somebody's nutritional status or their risk for aspiration or choking. Cause that's a huge liability to the facility. So I think, you know, you go, you put out those seven fires. Well, I'm not going to make Mr. Jones assigned to brush his teeth. Right. Because like I just did all, and it's, this is not to be negative. I mean, I, I, I understand, I get it, you know, because people are down your throat about why did Mrs. James lose seven pounds? You know, what's, what's the deal? So-and-so needs a diet change. Um, And I think that just takes up so much time
0: Hmm.
1: and there's only so much time.
0: You know, I remember it in the late eighties, early nineties, A lot of my colleagues, we would talk about how swallowing seemed to kind of be eclipsing Mm -hmm. a lot of the other things that we did in terms of working with communication and cognition. And there was this sense that we were losing an aspect of our practice. Mm -hmm. I don't hear that as much anymore. I wonder if because just historically now that's been so established that dysphagia is, uh, you know, one of the primary things we do in a medical setting. And I I see more cases, instances, for example, where SLPs really, that's their experience, and they really don't have much experience doing much other than that when it comes really to rehab, let's say. Right. You mentioned the other thing I was thinking of was working with uh, nursing assistants
1: mm-hmm.
0: and nursing in general. I mean, that's not always easy, is it? No,
1: no, it's not. I mean, I can't count. I mean, I go through and I try to count the amount of times that a nursing assistant or nurse made me cry and I had to go run back to the office or the bathroom because I didn't want to cry in front of everybody, right? Mm, but yeah. everybody's busy, everybody is overworked. And, you know, I think um, trying to get that relationship going with these nursing assistants and nurses is it, just so foundational to, so that they know, like, I am here for you. I'm here for this resident. You know the resident best. How can we partner, you know, and really um, care for this resident in the best way possible? And I think it's just so hard. We're just so siloed even when I don't think that's best practice necessarily. I think, you know, we're better off to have, maybe some blurred lines in terms of like, I can help you put the sheets on this bed while we talk about Mr. Smith and mm. how he can best. Do you know what I mean? I just, Yeah. I think that can really go, go a long way. And I think it's really hard to, um, it's hard. It's hard to establish those relationships because there's already this perceived imbalance of power in terms of how much a nursing assistant makes, how much a speech pathologist makes from a salary point of view, from an education point of view. So we're already kind of coming up against this um, power imbalance that needs to be kind of overcome because nursing assistants have the least amount of power, but the most amount of resident care. And so that's a barrier, you know, regardless of how you, how one feels about that. That's, that's the deal is like, they are responsible for the most. And yet they have the least amount of power, the least amount of pay in the organization. And so I think that's something to keep front and center. So is, is a,
0: is a, is a solution to that? Maybe going out of our way to acknowledge their power in the situation their usefulness in that context and you gave a very practical example of actually helping them Mm -hmm. you know i i liked that example of do making the bed with them Mm -hmm. because i think that is a very concrete way of starting to dissolve that power imbalance Mm -hmm. Um, and uh, giving back to them too. Yeah. Not, not always just taking from them. Yes. Because that's kind of what we do. It's easy for yeah. us to, to do that. It's just take from the the, the the staff at that level. Yes. Right.
1: Yes, yeah. I I do. I think that I think that would be great. And, you know, I've been a lot, a couple, there's been like five or six of our graduate students since I've been here who have worked as CNAs and they're in our graduate program. And I think how awesome is Mm -hmm. that for you to experience, Mm -hmm. you know, firsthand all of the demands of what is required of this job. You know, I just, I just think that is an amazing position to be in, Mm. to have had that experience firsthand.
0: Yeah. So, Just to go back a little bit, Mm -hmm. um, you've written about the need to, as much as we can, do client-centered care. Yeah. Your description of really taking a look at this person's life. So obviously, residents will have more or less ability to participate in that collaborative process, although we can bring family members in too and staff. I think that right. would be that would be considered collaborative care too. Mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm.
0: And so those are our goals. Right?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: What what uh, primary kinds of treatments and approaches do you think that we have evidence out there to support in order to achieve those goals? Right. So I'm thinking of okay. you mentioned memory books. Mm-hmm. As being one, and you've done a study looking at the use of memory books, uh, uh, a, an approach with some evidence behind it, mm-hmm. look, looking at whether SLPs make use of that evidence or whatnot. And I don't want us necessarily to get off on talking about sure. using evidence and whether people right. do that or not, but right, right. what other approaches can support, support these goals.
1: Right, right. I think, um, okay, so we have external memory aids, memory books is one. Space retrieval training, I think is another huge one. Mm. And, you know, with space retrieval training, you train really functional things that you, that don't, but you don't, you don't, it's situation specific training, right? So we don't, expect it to generalize into other things, but if you if we pick the right thing and the person's a great candidate for it, then this can be a way to train, follow precautions, fall precautions. What do I do if I want to get up? Target, hit the call button, right? You pair that with the motor response amazing. You know, another thing that I've done and there's evidence for is to use space retrieval space retrieval training to cue somebody to use their external memory aid. Okay. So it's like, well, what do I do when I need to brush my teeth? Look at the mirror. Okay. On the mirrors, the external memory aid. Okay. So then you kind of like put those two things together and kind of, you know, work it that way. So I think space retrieval training and Jennifer Brush um, and Jeanette, I think it's Benegos. They just have this beautiful workbook that they just published that's like super clinician friendly. Space retrieval training, step by step. I think it's from um, Health Professions Press. Oh my goodness. To me, that would be every skilled nursing facilities speech language pathologist. Like
0: who were the right authors handbook. again?
1: Um, Jennifer Brush and Jeanette. Benny Goss. I know I'm saying her name wrong. B-E-N-I-G-A-S, I I think. So we got external memory aids, space retrieval training. Um, The other evidence-based approach I think is environmental modifications. Okay. So I think we have evidence to show that a non-cluttered, and Jennifer Brush has some awesome work in this area, a non-cluttered environment, an environment that is Labeled an environment that has appropriate lighting, appropriate, so that when you know, this is the other funny thing too. These are very practical things. You walk that down a nursing facility hallway, and like everybody has their TV on like 90 dB, right? And you hear it like coming out. I mean, these are very, very simple simple interventions that make a huge difference, making sure that there's enough light in the room, making sure that the television is off, making sure that you have a way to, that you introduce, um, you know, kind of low tech AAC if, if you need it. Mm-hmm. Um, those types of environmental modifications. I think the other thing, the other approach is errorless learning Mm -hmm. in this population. So whatever it is that you're trying to train, that we put in enough supports so that the person doesn't keep making mistakes, right? So maybe we need to add more cueing, maybe we need to add more supports, or maybe we need to change the target. Tammy Hopper and Michelle Bourgeois, they... I think it's a couple of and several Ellen Hickey, several other people published a meta analysis or I think it was actually a systematic review of dementia interventions. It was in AJSLP, I think in 2012 was when it came out.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It, I, I read it. Yeah. Okay. It's, um, yeah. They looked at spaced retrieval, errorless learning um, vanishing mm-hmm. cues Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And memory workbooks; those mm-hmm. were the areas that there was evidence for. It was pretty mm-hmm. strong for yeah spaced retrieval, and uh, errorless learning was a little bit more mixed. It seems mm-hmm. like some people respond more to an errorful approach. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and uh, vanishing cues and errorless learning; there's a lot of overlap yeah. there, uh, right? Just before I forget, so I found that book, I think, that you were re- oh, yeah, referencing. Okay. It's called Spaced Retrieval Step-by-Step. Yes, and, yes. An Evidence-Based Memory Intervention. And yes. the, the first author is Benigas, B- yes. B-E-N-I-G-A-S. Yes. And then Brush and Elliot are the other yes, authors. Yes, okay, yes. Yeah. And actually, if you go to brushdevelopment.com, Mm-hmm. Um Jennifer Brush has a number of books that look like they might be useful uh, books for caregivers too.
1: Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. And she and Michelle Bourgeois are doing some work um where we're still there's definitely enough evidence to it's promising but there's still more work that needs to be done in using Montessori based a Montessori based philosophy in long-term care environments. And so Montessori is more of a philosophy than it is a specific treatment approach. Mm -hmm. So it's embracing these elements of person-centered care, of having meaningful activities, right? It's based off of this idea that people want purpose. They want to feel useful. And that for a lot of people, quality of life is connected to being able to contribute to one's community. Mm. So examples that they talk about are having the person with dementia be the greeter right at the door that greets all the people. Um, Jennifer Brush recently talked about one of her residents was the male deliverer right? Mm -hmm. So the mail would come to the facility and she would go around and pass out all the mail. You know, some people help with flower arranging, water, you know, giving water to people who are able to have it. You know, they have some nice models of this. Um, There's one place in New Zealand, it starts with a W. They have a really cool um, YouTube video about how they basically went from, I think it was almost everyone was on an antipsychotic med to no one was on an antipsychotic med when they um, started using some of these approaches. Hmm. Um,
0: I think I remember at a talk you gave at ANCDS two or three years ago that uh, you gave a case example where you were working with a gentleman with dementia and you had him count change for people? Yes, I or did. Put put change, like he would put count change and put it in rollers for people so yes. that they could bring him his change. And he loved to do that. And so he could, he could count mm-hmm. change and put it into rollers for you.
1: Yes, and he <laughs> absolutely loved it because he was a big casino guy. Uh, so it gets back to the person-centered, you know, he liked to fiddle around with change. He was a slot machine guy. And so he put the change into the, um, slots and yeah, it was just so cool. So this idea of like meaningful, meaningful Mm. activities, engagement, it's huge.
0: Yeah. And just, just to reiterate this Mm -hmm. basic move away from a stimulation based approach to working with people with dementia that we're not going to you know many of these other comments I saw on social media was something akin to well I've been told to do this kind of workbook based activity mm-hmm. stimulation based activity because it helps them in some general overall sense mm-hmm.
1: um, I mean I yeah I, I think we can get more bang for our buck doing other things you know we're actually we're doing an asha talk the title is toss the workbooks
0: (laughs) oh okay
1: um that's a that's a that's a
0: provocative title yeah
1: i didn't i think it was becky i don't
0: don't think you should walk around the convention (laughs) hall in the 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 vendor hall after that oh my
1: gosh it's like a
0: target on your back (laughs) oh so
1: true it's so true but you know and i think again. When we think about person-centered care, right? So you know there's some people who love to sit in their room and, like, fiddle around with, like, crosswords or whatever because that's what they did before, right? right? And so when we think about workbooks and whatnot, Mm. to me they're much more, like, feasible, palpable option if the person wants to do it, you know? Like, maybe the person likes playing around with cards. Maybe they played cards before but to me it's more powerful to try to get another person over there and let's like try to play cards together let's laugh even if we're not following the rules let's engage let's just have some joy in that present moment i think if a person appears well, you're, yeah you're yeah, you're,
0: you're targeting activity and participation
1: exactly at- right. exactly exactly mm-hmm. Yeah. So even if it's an impairment, a traditionally thought of as like an impairment level thing, like a, you know,
0: crossword puzzles. Yes, I mean, exactly. For lack of a yeah, there is exactly. some of that out there that, yeah, that seems to crossword puzzles. That's when when, hey, I have a new client. That mm-hmm. is a common thing they ask me. Well, should should my husband do crossword puzzles or? My physician told us that my husband should do crossword puzzles. It's really, really common. huh?
1: I mean, what's with that, really? I don't (laughs) know. I mean, it's one thing if you like to do crossword puzzles, it makes you happy and joyful and improves your quality of life. Then by all means,
0: I think what's with that is it's actually not that easy to think about what to do.
1: Yeah. And so, right.
0: So everybody defaults to crossword puzzles because our job is tough. It, it is. It's it's you know even coming up with these pragmatic goals.
1: It's, it really it's one, is.
0: It's one thing to say that we should do it. Um, to actually identify them uh, is a whole nother whole another ball game. Right. And again, it takes time.
1: It does. It takes time and it really does.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, What are you doing these days uh, in terms of what are your, where are your interests and what are you working on?
1: Mm -hmm. So right. besides,
0: besides trying to kill the workbook industry.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Do you know what the other, my long-term vision is to see long-term care the way that it is right now, be something that we look back you know, in 30 years and say, oh my gosh, I can't believe we did that to people kind of like institutionalizing people with mental illness. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, I just want it totally changed, like completely home-like, person-centered, not institutionalized, you know, not overly medicalized. But anyway, until we get to that point, point if we ever do, which I hope we do.
0: Well, um, yeah, and and not only will the residents benefit, but I think the job satisfaction for oh, SLPs, because yeah. that's a that's definitely an issue job satisfaction in the SNFs. And mm-hmm. again, I think a lot of this comes out of SLPs want to feel effective.
1: Yeah. Yeah. What we have to offer is so valuable. I mean, it really is, but it gets so constrained by all these other things. things. But um, one of the biggest projects that I'm working on right now is, um, uh, and uh, Michelle Bourgeois has done this and I've used some of her models and so has um, Needy Mahandra taking um, service learning And taking all of our very eager undergraduate students who are just wanting to learn about communication disorders and training them as communication partners for people with dementia in skilled nursing facilities. So what we have going on now, we have about 40 undergrads who are in a skilled, in a local, local skilled nursing facilities. And these Um, they're trained to be a meaningful conversation partner with somebody with dementia. So these were people who were typically kind of parked in their wheelchair outside of the nurse's station. Um, So for one, they're able to experience, you know, hands on what it's like to interact with this population and to be in this type of environment. And it also over time, I feel like we're getting better and better at not being a burden to the staff, but actually being helpful, right? Mm. To where we can say, you know, okay, Anna is going to go hang out with Mrs. Smith for a while. She knows her, she's gonna. um... So we train them to um, interview the family, to figure out, you know, who the person is, and then in as much as possible, engage the person in meaningful conversation or meaningful activity in some way for some of our folks that are you know nonverbal and kind of in the end stages we sit with them and hold their hand scratch their back maybe it, put lotion on them are you
0: mm-hmm. able to are students able to then do this without direct supervision from a licensed mm-hmm. therapist?
1: Right. Cause it's none of it is billed. So it's all part of a service learning contract between the university and the facility, you know? Where, yeah. Yeah. Go it, ahead.
0: Well, because I had a situation in my state where, cause I ran a book club for or I facilitate a book club for people with aphasia. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to have students be able to do that because this is not a treatment group
1: yeah this is, right
0: this is just a regular book club that happens right. happens to be for people with aphasia
1: mm-hmm.
0: and i was told by my state licensing board that those students could not be in a room doing anything with the person with aphasia without me there
1: wow that they
0: were jeopardizing their license which huh. I thought I just did not understand the logic of it, because we weren't billing right. anything like that. But it was just the mere context, the the mere scenario, was a no go. A no go oh, for them. Yeah, you know, huh. maybe it's just the state I'm in. Maybe it was just the person I talked to.
1: Yeah, but I don't know. I talked to
0: them a lot, and they were on I'm the sure. board. They were on the board. So, right. But it, it seems like it's. I think that's a great idea, and and students are can be a resource, not not a burden.
1: Yes. Right. Yeah. Right.
0: Mm-hmm. Yes,
1: that's what we're you know. And the other thing that I'm looking to do, um, more from a research angle, is take a look at if we can if we have more kind of sustainable outcomes in training. Nursing assistants, if we use more of an on site coaching model than a typical like didactic come to my half day workshop model on communication strategies. Mm. But if you kind of target a specific problem and work specifically with that problem, with the CNA, with the resident, and really kind of get in there and do more of a coaching model than a didactic model and take a look at some differences there. Mm.
0: Well, uh, Dr. Douglas, th- thank you very much.
1: Oh, thank you. I hope you have something you can use here.
0: <laughs> oh, I think it. I, I think it was great. You know, this is a, this is a difficult and messy topic. Right. Um, and right. And there are many, many things, obviously, as you point out, that influence practice in that setting. So. No way we would cut. Co- we could cover all of it, but I think you did a great job of talking about a lot of it. So, and
1: maybe we can link you. it to some of these um, social media boards, just so that they know they're not alone. You know, feel so isolated with some of these issues. You know, so.
0: Yeah, we the ANCDS podcast we do announce on Facebook. And, oh, okay. Uh, on Reddit too. Oh, cool. So, and we're on Twitter. So we're all about social media. Man, that is
1: great. Love it. Love it.
0: All right. Well, thanks again.
1: Oh, gosh. Thank you so much.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of the ANCDS podcast. To learn more about the Academy of Neurologic Communication Disorders and Sciences, you can go to a-n-c-d-s dot o-r-g you can also listen to our other podcast episodes there or subscribe to us on itunes